<laughs> so, Sussman, Livingston, and uh, we're going to invade Andoria after a feint to ensure that most of their fleet isn't there. But we're invading Andoria directly, the planet, or rather the moon, not um, you know one of their outposts or territories. We're going straight for the the priors. So after we invade Moscow, uh, oh, oh, we should probably have a reason. Uh, they've got the Zindi weapon. They actually show f footage of the prototype that was attacking the moon from back in season three. So that's cute. <laughs> this is uh, this is messed up. Number one, this is what the Andorians wanted. Remember? That was Shran's whole real mission there. Although Shran didn't agree with it, it was the intent of the Andorian military to go ahead and just have a freaking Death Star lying around. And B, the argument that was given, that Shran himself gave, was that no one, especially the Vulcans, would ever dare attack us if we had one of these things. Vulcan's excuse... The Cassus Belly for attacking Andoria is that they might have one of these things. QED. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've said before that Season 4 is effectively when Enterprise actually started, but the harsh truth is that Season 4 wouldn't have nearly the impact it does without Season 3 and 2 and 1. There's just too much that needed to happen in order for this to land properly. Otherwise, this stuff just kind of comes out of nowhere. That's kind of a byproduct of how they're doing things, because they are deliberately trying to establish connections to all the stuff that happened before, in addition to establishing threads for the future as well. Malcolm is all upset about getting involved here. This actually irritates me, and it's a dumb scene, because his argument is, we are betraying an ally. We shouldn't get involved. Even though if they're your ally, you would be involved on their side. Also, you've already been betrayed by that ally. The damage that you're currently fixing is because of that. Oh, and you're also 100% involved in between the Andorian Vul Vulcan hostilities and have been more than once personally. So no, go away, Malcolm. Look, I get not wanting to be... Oh, jeez, that's a huge... Do I want to t talk about that? Interventionism is a huge topic. It really is. Getting involved in the affairs of other nations is a big freaking deal. Probably because evil, stupid, greedy, and stupid people have used interventionism for uh, millennia in order to try and further their own ends rather than actually get involved for the benefit of the nations that they're intervening in. So... <laughs> It's hard to talk about the topic in a vacuum. We have discussed this before. In fact, this actually came up during the Call of Duty lore run of all things. But, I mean, I'm just saying, it, you're already involved. You should probably go ahead and commit to being involved. Now, the ideal would be to not lead to a war scenario, and I agree with that firmly, but it is worth noting that it, it's actually reasonable to say, and this episode proves, that the actual two sides, you know, the overall aggregate of the two sides, don't want a war. Even though there was a fight in this very episode, it does not lead to outright conflict, even though both sides could easily use this as a casus belly to continue and pursue a war against the other. But thankfully, neither does, although this will come up in the future, because, past the credits... We see Major Talok, uh, or rather we are told about Major Talok, who is informed he needs to go and find the insurgents uh, and kill them. Kill them all. Brutally and horribly. Kill, kill, kill. 
Shran is confronted personally. It's always nice to see Shran. Shran is livid at the idea of a war between the Vulcans and the Andorians. That actually is so appropriate. Of course he is. He doesn't want that war. It would be terribly devastating to his people and to the Vulcans. And Shran himself personally has taken effort to try and ensure that that war does not happen. Remember? There was a whole episode about that ceasefire. It's actually still among one of my favorite Enterprise episodes, even to this day. So he doesn't want this. He is a reasonable person, military, loyal, and respectful. But he doesn't want to just mass slaughter. It's fascinating how angry he gets about this. And he is willing to at least listen. This is, again, why I mentioned why the previous stuff matters so much. If it wasn't for the fact that he already had a pre-existing condi- condition, a relation, I should say, excuse me, between, the, be, between himself personally and the humans, this would come across as humans are special. Instead, once again, the humans just happen to be the ones who have already been interacting with both sides, and that's been a recurring theme for multiple episodes, at least three leading up to here, probably more, depending on how you want to define it. This then leads to Pinar Syndrome. Paul is cured of Pinar Syndrome, and it's clarified that that's just something that's done by someone who doesn't know what they're doing, which makes perfect sense. If you perform surgery on someone and don't know what you're doing, you're probably going to mess something up. Same thing with, with a mind meld, which is a very delicate and very careful, despite what TAS would tell you, uh, interaction between two minds. So, yeah, you know, it's, it makes sense that you would screw that up, and then problems would happen. Thankfully, someone who's well-versed in it can fix that, because that also makes sense. These people have studied mind meld for how many centuries? So, we have a bit of a recurring theme here. People who dislike the orders they are forced to follow. Um, you know, we've got uh, Archer and his thing. We've got uh, Tucker and Malcolm. <laughs> Tucker, who's not sure about this whole thing and refuses Admiral Gardner. Malcolm, who is unsure about the Tucker thing and almost re- refuses that thing. Saval, who is obviously against the High Command, along with DePaul. But also Shran. So Shran beams him over, and he's just... There's a distaste. Huge credit to Jeffrey Combs, because he manages to get across a nice balance of agreeing with what he's doing, while at the same time hating it. He believes what he is doing is necessary. In fact, Saval agrees with him, if you're paying attention. Saval's reaction is, crank this thing up and get it over with. And Shran's Shran's response, I'm screwing up my A's, Shran's response is to just kind of curtly nod. Okay, let's do it. You know, I was trying to hold back, but and I don't want them to hurt you. I don't want this to do. And it's not because he likes Saval. It's because he respects him. This is someone who has actually treated him decently, despite being a Vulcan. This individual... Remember, I, I kept hang, hammering that point back in Ceasefire. This individual, this microscopic connection is what matters to Shran, and why it bugs him. Bugs is really a, a underselling it. It, 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 it. All that rage, all that anger, is all because of the fact that he is forced to do this, and it bugs the ever-living crap out of him. And Saval logically, is just kind of going along with it because he knows there's nothing else to say here. He could try to lie to tell him what he wants to hear in order to stop the torture, but he can't and he doesn't because he is not, in Shran's own words, a lesser man. 
Saval is as committed to this as Shran is, and the two actually show just how similar they are in these scenes as they act off each other. Forgive me for gushing. These are the best scenes in the episode right here. I know, the torture scenes, right? But it's true. I'm actually reminded of a very, very, very powerful sequence of scenes back in Deep Space Nine between Garrick and Odo. Now, this doesn't quite land as hard as those scenes did, because it, those scenes were frickin' poetry and amazing, and they ended up in a different manner, and the, the conclusion was different, and they had more build-up. But this still feels in the same leaning, the same direction of that emotional strength. Neither people on either side of the board want to be doing this, and both of them are enduring it for the sake of their mutual respect and duty to that which they actually believe in. Shran finally relents when the Earthship attacks him. Indeed, what actually finally pushes the article is him saying, All right, no, I don't want to make an enemy of the humans, too. I don't want to make an enemy of the Vulcans at this point. At least, not of you. So, Shran finally acquiesces on this point. This is... God, it's such a powerful moment. I'm sorry for gushing. Again, it, it's, it's several scenes. It goes across several scenes. But it's so powerful. Especially because what ends up happening is then Shran goes into the medical bay and is obviously and legitimately concerned for Saval. Tucker doesn't get that. Which makes sense. Tucker doesn't think like this. For all of Tucker's mentality and intelligence and loyalty, he just he's not on the same wavelength. But Shran is, and Shran flat out states, like I said, you know, Saval would understand. Saval knew what he was doing. And out of that respect and mutual admiration, he decides as one soldier, as one loyalist to another, he's going to take this information as red, or black, I guess, as true, <laughs> depending on how you want to define that accounting-wise, and say, we're going to deal with this. And Shran puts his weight and his, his career and his people on the line... Because he does have faith in this now. Faith of the heart, you might say. And, sorry, sorry. I love it. Because, well, this is another domino, isn't it? But I'll get back to that in just a minute. So then they go, and it's only seven ships versus twelve. The Vulcans are going to win that fight. And indeed would have won that fight. Although they would have won it at cost, which would have led to the rest of the Andorian fleet probably pounding the Vulcan fleet. And... That would be bad for everyone. Both sides would be severely weakened, and the immediate retaliations would probably lead to a huge amount of casualties on both sides. Never mind a massive weakening of both sides' military... Uh, not, not military. Their ability to project. A ship isn't just something that can shoot another ship. It's something that can move, transport, scan, find, fight, recon, etc. It is a mobile force, and losing that much mobility with regards to your ability to project your capacity, your ability, your, your transport, your cargo, your scans, your communications, everything, is a huge loss to a nation in, a, in this kind of environment, in a spatial, interstellar environment. Being planet-locked is a massive disadvantage in an interstellar situation. You see the problem? This is one of the reasons I keep banging on about how big of a deal it is that Earth really only has the one NX at this point, and why they've been working so hard to get a second one out. They need that ability to project. Now, some other stuff happens on the planet. You know, Starfleet is a radical faction, haha. Tolak shows up. No guns, of course, because they're still in the area. And uh, T'Pol, thankfully, thinks very quickly after she's left behind and decides, oh, yeah, no, they're going to Mount Salea. 
to translate the writings, obviously, because I'm, I'm one of them. I don't lie, unlike you. Which is funny, she says, as she lies. There's also a reference of the Tomed mission. I did a little tracking of that. They never otherwise mentioned the Tomed mission, although I'm sure it's in a deliberate reference to the Tomed incident, which would lead to the Romulan Federation treaties that would end up happening over in the TNG era. But the point is, based on what is stated, that had to have happened before she actually ended up signing up with the crew, or rather with the Vulcan Command, which leads to her signing up with the crew, and therefore, based on the dates given, that had to have been at least five years ago. Why do I bring all that up? I'll get to that in just a second. Meanwhile, Vlas uh, threatens execution for T'Pol. He's really pushing that envelope way too hard, but you can see the desperation here. After all, Vlas is actively losing control of the Council as he speaks. As he's talking, Kuvak is like, dude, they don't have the weapons, and there's, they're, they're not an, an unsurprised... There, there's no reason. We've lost all justification. We should pull back immediately. And Vlas is like, no, we're too committed, which is stupid and doesn't work that way when you can actually con contact your soldiers. At a certain point in history, actually at most points in history, if you commit the army, yet yeah, calling it back is a, is a problem. When you can immediately contact them in real time, not so much. But Vlas is truly getting desperate. You'll notice he completely loses control of his emotions bit by bit over the course of the scene. Once again, praise to uh, Forrest, I think. Axel Forrest? Ah, oh, I wrote down his name back here. Robert Foxworth. There we go. Robert Foxworth does a great job here. Because he slowly descends over the course of these scenes and just starts getting more and more ranty. And he gets to the point where he can't even make a logical argument for why he's doing this anymore. Because there is no logical argument, at least not that he can honestly give for what he's doing. There is a logic to what he's doing, but he can't admit that to the rest of the council. It gets to the point where he orders one of the guards to aim a gun at the minister and say, okay, now I'm in charge. Shut up. This, of course, then leads to, you know, the, the, the battle getting worse. And at one point, uh, Archer and T'Pau come in. Kuvak is awesome. Actually takes out the guard, grabs the gun, and is pretty much the hero of the day in more ways than one. I, I legitimately cheered when Kuvak shot uh, Velaz, no joke. But what's really awesome about this scene, prior to the shoot, of course, Vlas and T'Pau are shown in perfect contrast to each other. This is important. Not just because it's your typical fiction where the good guy and the bad guy, and the bad guy's going, and the good guy is all calm because they've won. This is old Vulcans versus what Vulcans should be. This scene right here, with Vlas freaking out, and, and being this, this hardline militant jackass versus T'Pau, who is serene and calm and self-contained. And Vulcan is the answer the creators are giving to us, the viewers. This is what's been going on with the Vulcans all this time. This is a literal side-by-side -side comparison. This is going away. Please stick with us. It's a powerful scene. And the meta implications of it, I think, were probably not really felt all that much because not a lot of people had stuck with Enterprise this long when it was still going live, which is a shame because this much of this stuff was being done for people who had stuck with it. There's a reason why for many, many, many years I have heard nothing but prayers about season four, and this is one of the reasons why, which I add to, by the way. I still haven't had a reason to complain about season four, 
Although we have two episodes coming up I'm a little worried about, but we'll get there. So, they manage to call off the fleet. Everything's cool. Koss is weirdly helpful. Annuls the marriage. That's gone. Pinar syndrome. That's gone. Tying up neatly all these loose ends. We're walking. We're walking. And then Talok shows up. This almost didn't happen. Originally, they wanted a brand new actor here to, to play the role of the Romulan. First Romulan chronologically that we've seen, although I don't know if there's any over in Discovery that might predate this. But first, first time, right? And God, this made so many things make so much sense. So much lined up because of this. <laughs> but before I go into that, like I said, this scene almost didn't happen because they wanted a new actor in. Possibly the gentleman they get for uh, Valdor later on. I forget the actor's name. I'll, I'll bring it up when we get there. But they couldn't do that. They Remember, really restrained budget, really restrained fo- footage uh, schedule, and they just couldn't afford anything new or anyone new. So what they did was they took one of the existing sets, one of the existing actors who was already there in costume, and got Talok, who was already in makeup, and threw on one of the outfits from the Nemesis set, you know, from Star Trek Nemesis, that they happened to have lying around, and more or less just threw this scene together on the fly to make sure that the scene actually happened. Otherwise, this scene would not have happened. That's a huge deal, because this scene is so important. Everything the Vulcans have been doing for decades now suddenly makes so much more sense. Remember what I mentioned last time about how the Vulcans have been slowly positioning themselves and taking control of more and more directly humanity? They even mention in this episode, we're not going to be watching over your shoulder anymore. And there's an implication that the connection between the two is simultaneously strengthened, but at the same time uh, chopped, for lack of a better way to put it. That rather than this, it's going to be more like this visual metaphor. But the other thing is, so, so, so that would make perfect sense for why Romulans would be pushing for that. Romulans controlling Vulcans, controlling humans, would be in their overall best interest. And this is such a Romulan thing to do. To stir up all the little nations so that all of them are fighting each other, so that none of them are a threat to the Romulan Star Empire. All of this lines up so neatly, I cannot believe this wasn't planned. Because it wasn't. I know it wasn't. This is, this is a total certainty moment. The other thing, though, I mentioned the whirlpool. I, I implied that, and I talked about the Earth approach. But what's what's really engaging about this to me, more than anything else, is this is foreshadowing. While this does explain so much about Vulcan relations, about the Andorian conflicts, about how the Vulcan High Command has sent out spies and there's been weird stuff going on with them, this goes back as far as Season 1. This was also brought up in Season 2. This also came up in Season 3, and it's been a prevalent thing for the last three episodes. We've seen how far they're willing to go and how bad they've gotten, and how violent is the way I want to put it they've gotten. Willing to fight and hurt and kill others in the name of self-interest. I talked earlier about how important it was that one person reached out to one person reached out to one person and three people from three different races managed to unite in purpose. Remember that? That, along with this, are bricks being laid for the future. 
I know I've talked about this before, but I have to gush about this because this is the exact moment I realized the brilliance of this format, of the mini-arcs. Until this moment, I'd always believed that the long-term arcs would be best. Babylon 5, right? Multi-season arcs of major story significance going across you know dozens of episodes. But seeing this format, this is probably what I would do if I was making a television show. An arc that lasts several episodes, but in the arc, you lay the pieces and the, and the foundation for other arcs that are coming up in the future. I talked about this back in Stormfront. I've talked about this with the Augments. We have the very beginning pieces of what will eventually become the Federation and the Romulan War, both established right here in this existing arc. Brilliant. I love it. I love the format. I'm sorry, I cannot gush about it enough. Now, the other value of doing these kind of arcs, if you decide to do a filler episode, it's not as big of an interruption. Like, if you have a season-long arc and in the middle they decide to go to the Old West, not that I'm referencing anything specific or anything, that's kind of off-putting, right? It's like, well, why are we doing this? We've, we've got other things to deal with, right? I mean, I know Renoa can just keep hanging there, but do we really have to be doing this now? <laughs> And it just feels off. The pacing, the tempo, the positioning is wrong. But if an arc lasts a few episodes, then you can have a filler episode and then start a new arc without needing to really have any problems there. And because you're establishing stuff in advance, that filler episode may have stuff that was established, you know, built up to, and the filler episode itself might be used to further establish future arcs. Now, I don't know if they do that in Season 4. I'm just spitballing and, again, talking about how I would construct a show if I was building one. But next couple, I think, I guess the next two episodes are filler episodes. We are interrupting the arcs to go ahead and do some side quests. It'll be interesting to see how these ones hold up. I remember the arcs much better than the side quests. Like, I barely remember Bound, for example. That's not next. That's coming up later. Either way, this has been interesting and entertaining and enjoyable, and I do hope you... Have enjoyed as always. See you next time.